Father, help me and help us as we finish this first chapter of a letter that was written so many years ago. Give us the ability and the insight and the grace to see the battles that come and, in essence, the treaty you've proposed to um, make peace with those battles. Help us now. Let us see the history of your church today. Let us see the goodness of your grace. Let us see the love and example and teachings and calling of Christ. And this time I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have seen at least four battles in the first chapter of the book of James. James started off his book by saying, Christians, see hard times as friends. Welcome them with open arms. Oh, okay, that's great. And he said, in the midst of hard times, God can do many things. Ultimately, he shows us what matters in life. And then subset A he shows us the goodness of himself through Jesus and how to deal with those battles. The first battle we saw when we're going through it is to not doubt, unto doubt. Doubt will come, especially when times are hard. And then we saw the battle of comparison. When times are difficult, we can start to compare our situation to other people. Does that ever help? No. We actually become more angry, more bitter, more angry, more bitter, more angry, and more what? Bitter. We begin to get angry at other people and then maybe loathe, self-loathe. Then the battle of anger, because it was talked about that, which James says, when you get angry, when you do certain things, know this, that does not produce the righteousness of God, which Christians, how many of you get angry, let's be honest in church, those of us who are Christians, how many of us get angry wanting to dishonor God and dishonor Christ's sacrifice on the cross? None of us. We don't think that way. We get angry usually, especially in America with all our information, because we're going to stand up for God and bring his righteousness, right? And James reminds us most of our anger and most of our huh actually does the opposite. And he talked about what? Not speaking too much, funny for a pastor to say that, right? <laughs> but listening and slowing our blood-boiling anger. So we talked about that. So battle your anger, deal with it. And the last one we saw, and we'll get to the, I should, we saw, we'll get, there's one more, but the last one we saw was this struggle of the world. We do live in a broken place, amen? We live in a broken world we live in a country that has many issues, racial, economic, geopolitical, political, political. <laughs> we live in a world which um, sometimes it's nice growing up young people having our heads buried in the sand, right, when it has to do with world affairs because we got to just do our thing. But then when we start to be captured by Christ maybe and start to walk with him, or just go to school, or live life, or travel, we start to see, and the blinders tend to come off, and our world, in many places, is unjust. And that can stain us. James specifically talked about things like sexual immorality, and slander, and malice, but the world is the world, and it can be ever so enticing. James 1.22, this is the treaty, this is the truce, 
This is the gospel fully understood and lived out. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What James is saying is if we simply adhere to the creeds and speak the Christianese, yet don't do what God has instructed, we will fall in every battle. We will doubt. We will have serious anger issues. We will compare everything, even in Christianity, and we will be taken on by the world, and eventually we will be undone. If we don't do the word, James says. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word, we saw this last week, not a doer, he is like a man or woman who looks, remember last week's mirror? It wasn't the mirrors we have, looks intently. Oh, that mole's getting bigger. I got to deal with that, right? That's me. And then forgets I have a mole. I compared myself to Tom Brady last week. You guys laughed. I get it. I'm not Tom Brady. We get it, okay? Don't laugh that hard. (laughs) Verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. There's the battle. We understand what it takes to believe. We understand the goodness of Jesus. We understand what's been done for our soul. We understand maybe atonement. But we act on that, and in God's grace we are formed to not only just hear that, but to what? Walk out every day and be a doer of what? What Jesus taught. Remember, the canon wasn't completed till a couple centuries after. They had the Torah. They had the Old Testament. They had oral tradition. They had the apostles' eyewitness, mainly of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Because he taught a lot. Over and over. And he taught in these funny stories sometimes called what? Parables. And when the Holy Spirit came, and when Pentecost happened, the revelation, in a sense, was rebirth and understanding fell, and we could understand the teachings of Jesus. We could understand the kingdom. So verse 25, the verse Layla read, we'll try and dwell on a couple verses this morning. But the one, on the contrary, so we're going to fall, we're going to struggle, we're not going to basically live the life prescribed by our Savior if we are just hearers of the word, but if we're doers, we do this. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what? Gets up every day and keeps walking the walk, perseveres, being no hearer or not only a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be not justified. You see what it says? You're not saved by that. Who saves? The law of liberty saves Jesus because he's good. And then he commissions, and he says, follow me. So our salvation doesn't rest on us doing the word. We've got to understand that. A lot of weird stuff happens when we go the other way. But we are what? Blessed. We are formed into Jesus. In and around the first century near Antioch, not like over in the Bay, but in the, near, in, in the Middle East, I'll say it that way, a slang term came out. You know what it was? Oh, those Christians. If Sarah was a Christian in and around near Antioch, maybe the year 60 or 70, we might sit over and go, why is she trying to be like a Jesus person? We gotta find a name for those Jesus people. It was called the way early on. You see that in Acts? Part of the way. That connotes some interesting language, right? The way, they're going somewhere. They're on a path. They're following, but we would say, Sarah and Steve, they're just Christians. 
It would kind of be like a punk nowadays. If you don't know what a punk is, it's just like a, what a bunch of punks. I was a punk back in the day, so I'm a recovering punk. So a Christian in the first century, when people were started to be called Christians, was kind of a derogatory, slangy term for people who weren't Christians to call Christians. They're trying to follow the teachings of Jesus. Interesting, where words come from, right? History tells us that. That's not a debated subject. The law of liberty. God in grace has sent a treaty to your heart and my heart. He has sent a peacekeeping agent. It is the gospel, the good news, and his name is Jesus. One of his other names is the law of liberty. Freedom, when we come to him, to act and live in a way that honors God, that loves him, but then what? Honors fellow man the way Jesus prescribed. Remember what James is doing? In the Sermon on the Mount. James is making a commentary in many ways on his half-brother's teaching. Remember I talked about it? I'll do it again here. I'm really angry. I'm not. I'm angry at you. And she's a Roman citizen. And all she does is brag about her Roman citizenship and makes me do whatever she wants me to do under the law. So tell me to do something. Maybe pick up the keys. Thank you. I got to pick up the keys. I'm under bondage to what? A man-made civil law. And if I don't do it, what can she do? She can call chemos back there, kill them. That's the law. So say, hold the keys. Chemo. (laughs) But the point is, this is where Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount and in his teaching. That is not liberty. That's anger and frustration and in a way slavery and oppression, which that's wrong. Jesus gets to that. But he gets to that in a more, (laughs) we'll say, universal way to people and leaders. He quotes a lot of Old Testament scriptures about justice and leading well. But when I disobey this Roman law, she's in the army, it was different back then. Women could be generals, it wasn't that way. But I'm basically saying I am under my own law, which is ruled by anger and bitterness and comparison. How many good Jewish folks who were occupied by the Roman government in the first century were like, we're God's people, they're not. Why are they getting away with everything? No, they wouldn't do that because we wouldn't do that, right? We would do that so quick, Twitter would explode with that type of rhetoric. The Roman government would shut down Twitter because that's all we'd be saying, right? Because it's true. We're the children of the promise. We're the Hebrews. We're obeying God, and I am being ruled by a pagan. And what did Jesus say? Pick up the keys and say, what do you want me to do with the keys? And you say, walk a mile. Tell me. Come with me. Come on. She hates this. Okay, how's your day? How's your family? Is the little Johnny growing up well? Yeah, he's nice. She hates me. I'm in big trouble. Here's a mile. Aren't you going to Redwood City? Let's keep going. Come on. Okay. Now what law am I under? Liberty. Because I'm not beholden to a Roman law. Did I say? No, she could. She's the Roman. She can do whatever she wants, right? I'm not beholden to a Roman law under Caesar, 
I'm beholden to the law of liberty in Christ, love. That's where Jesus gets to. That's what James is commentating on. That's why we're free even if we're under oppression, which we all are in some way. Our bodies are under oppression. Our minds can be under oppression. There's been racial oppression in our country, real oppression. We're still struggling with those things. I thank God for the Bay Area as much flack as it gets. I know there's issues here too. But we're struggling as a people. But when we act as a part of the way, we are not beholden to Roman law or Old Testament Jewish law. We're beholden to the Jesus law, which is the law of liberty. That's who he is. And that's the gospel. And James is simply reminding us of this. God has sent from heaven a truce, a peace treaty for your soul to live peaceably. His name is Jesus Christ. He has died for people. We believe and repent. We turn from our ways and return to God through Christ. All true, all essential, but it doesn't stop there. Then we say what? This way of peace is obeying my master every day. And James is going to, as we get into two and three, bring in this bridge of faith and works. James doesn't ascribe to the heresy that your works will save you. James simply says your faith is worthless without works. That's what he says. Grace alone saves. God alone saves. But in that, then he invites us into this saving way, the Jesus way, and we begin to live differently. Let me tell you about the first century church. When I say first century church, it's actually three centuries. We, uh, I'll say it this way. I grew up in a nominal Christian environment in a Baptist church in the Bay Area. I was there for 24 years. This was the basic understanding. If you do the right things and you work hard enough, you'll be blessed and you'll probably go to heaven. That's kind of true. It just kind of breeds like, oh, okay. And I started working there. And I started working on a team which over about four or five years started to live and model, we can say the things of God, but we're going to live however we want, which is very prevalent in a lot of churches. We can say the right sermons, we can have the right classes, we have the good doctrine, but guess what? We're going to kind of just cruise to heaven. And I say it a lot, but in my opinion, this is in my opinion, it's not fact or proven by a court. The thought was, Jesus paid our ticket to heaven, and we're going to ride that ticket to leadership in church, and we're going to cruise. That's a very Western, last century type mentality. Read a little bit of history. And the problem is, in my opinion, I started to become a hearer only, not much of a doer, but this is where it gets dangerous, we'll see it as we close, I began to be a spewer of that. So I was a hearer and a spewer. And I would say things to my good friend Sheila I met. Sheila, you know, this is what you really need to do to get to heaven, which I wouldn't do any of it. And so Sheila, being very smart, would start to observe and go, he says a lot of good things, but man, he treats his wife like a turkey. And you guys would see that too. And you would go, he's kind of slick if I am, 
behind the pulpit or with blogging, but guess what? I see how he treats people. And it doesn't look like Jesus. It looks actually, in my case, like the opposite of what Jesus does. And so people start to clue in. And in these cultures, which can be prevalent, when questions come, the spin happens where things are said like this by me. Well, they're just not that spiritual. They haven't been enlightened. And it's the ultimate out because why? In cultures like that, I have God on my side and you have God on your side. And it's kind of relative at that point, right? Because we can talk and debate. But what I didn't understand, which God has shown me over the last decade is saying the things that are true 100%. When I teach, I got to tell you the truth or I will be judged harsher than you could imagine. And that's the right thing. But I must live it before I ever open my mouth. Otherwise, I am the hypocrite Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I am on the what? Uh Uh-oh, look out. Look at me, how good I am. That's the street corner. Let me tell you how to pray. What did Jesus say? Go to your closet. (laughs) Maybe get on your knee and pray this way. Deb, we're in the airport again. Deb needs help. Here's my money. Don't let, know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's the kingdom way. Where's my pot pie? Don't treat women like animals, men. Stop it. That's what Jesus said. If you remember, pastor, that there's an issue with someone, probably forget your sermon. Tell the worship team to pray and continue worship and go reconcile right then. So that's the way. That's different, right? That's the doing Jesus talked about. Let me tell you a little history about the first century church. And when I mean first century, again, 300 years. The first century church was the church before Constantine. Constantine, as you guys might have remembered or known, he tried to (laughs) make Christianity a legal, national religion. Some good things, some bad things. But in the first century, maybe from the year 60 on, do you know the church grew, history shows us, by 40% every decade? Think about that. It started with one or two, and by the time Constantine was in power, there were six million Christians, give or take, in a 60 million person empire in Rome. So the joke is, God tithed 10% of the church. (laughs) You know, 10%, we joke it. It's 10% of the people. Do you know the early church had no evangelism program? No mission? Like they're they're worried about themselves? One, because of persecution, and two, because they didn't really need it per se, because people were coming to Christ. Well, I know dispensation we can talk about, and the, the acts of the apostles, and gifts, and miracles, all that to be true but people were coming in droves to the church. Do you know the teaching in the first century on the Great Commission was more about the Trinity than going to the nations? You can read it. It's all there. Think about that. The teaching in Matthew 28, which we herald, we got to go, we need to go, was more about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, unity and teaching and baptizing than we need to go. What I'm getting at, right or wrong, that was their focus. And I'm going to argue They were growing and multiplying and loving and caring because they weren't just hearers of the word, they were doers every day. 
And what history tells us, guys like Josephus and others and Christians and non-Christians, was pagans, simply non-believers, were attracted to the church. Why were they primarily attracted? Because it appeared they lived peaceable lives under intense hardship. Say it this way. The affluent at times, I'm affluent too, we're all pretty much affluent in America, we get it. There's no shade on that. The people with the empire and with the prestige are kind of some of the same people we and us might be now. There's no peace in this life. The battles they have with doubt, with existence, does God exist? With anger, with comparing their life, the first century, other Romans, they were all there. And there was no treaty in their hearts. There was no gospel. There was no white flag surrendered to a good God. There was simply non-peace or struggle. Yet the Christians were attractive for this reason. There's peace in their lives when all hell's breaking loose sometimes. There was persecution, and mainly the persecution wasn't the way we might think. A lot of the persecution came when they got a cranky emperor in there, and people were complaining because Christians weren't showing up to the different festivals celebrating pagan gods. So what we can decipher from that is Christians were not compoundists. You know what I mean by that? Let's build a wall and make sure Rome stays out. That's not a political statement. I'm not trying to go there. Christians were part of everyday life and everyday culture with non-Christians, but the one thing they wouldn't do was be involved in idol worship in this way. They would not go celebrate other Roman gods, and that's actually what got them in trouble sometimes, right? I'll pick on Sam. Hey, where was Sam last festival? She wasn't here, she's a Christian. Oh, now we know. Let's write that down. Where was Debbie? Well, she didn't come either because she goes to that house church and around the way. Okay, I'll keep that, say that for a later date. The problem is the church was exploding because some of the people who were writing down things were being converted. <laughs> and what happened to those lists? Kindling, because God's good sometimes in that way. He's always good, but he doesn't promise us an easy life, but his blessings are real. You know what I mean? It was really hard to become a Christian in the first century. This was the non-evangelism model. Who am I going to pick on? Josh. Josh wants to become a Christian. Josh comes up to John and says, I want to become a Christian. You know what John does nowadays? Awesome, come to our discipleship class. That's good, right? Or, yeah, let's talk. John would literally say, are you sure you want to become a Christian? And Josh would, yeah. And Josh might ask, why are you asking that? And John might say, do you know that what's involved with this? And Josh, maybe sheepishly, would go, yeah. And John would say, okay, let's go talk to one of the church elders. And they would go talk to one of the church elders, and they would be a co-interview. You would ask questions, and they would ask questions. And then, on average, for the next two or three years, Josh would basically be a Christian in training or an apprentice. And what John would do would take Josh under his wing, almost like the 12-step program, and check in and observe and coach and teach. 
And then John would ask questions like, Josh, what do you do for a living? Because to become a Christian, you can't be a prostitute. You can't be an actor. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. This is what happened. Hear me. This is not the gospel. And if you're in the military, Josh, you have to take a vow not to kill anyone. And then John would, again, meet with other leaders. And, you know, in those meetings, history tells us, Josh really wouldn't say much. Guess who would talk for Josh? John. Because now John is staking his Christian faith, his belief, his relationship with God, and saying, yeah, this is all good. This is true. I'm observing this. This all led up to confirmation in some ways, in ways of, yes, we, we see this. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's what happened when we need to learn. And then when things checked off, Josh would be baptized, and he would completely enter into this way. Now, some of us go, that's works-based. God is, yes, God's bigger. I'm just saying that's what history tells us. And my point is, next verse. The early church took this very seriously. And we read that verse, and we go, oh, yeah, of course Josh couldn't cuss. Of course he couldn't talk about dirty jokes. That's not what James is saying. James is actually saying we want to take some time, you know, not fully, but the church went with it this way. James is commentating on the way in which people honored Jesus with their lips at the time and walked out the door and denied him in every facet of their life. And when someone came to the church, when it was exploding 40%, decade after decade, history tells us, there was an understanding of count the cost, know what you're getting into, because we are serious about this. The inference is, of course, you're not going to be a prostitute when you come to Christ. (laughs) But we as the church and we as your leaders are concerned with, how are you in your home? How are you at work? How are you with people who disagree with you? What sort of countenance do you have when political debate sparks up? Modern day, what do your fingers type at 3 a.m. on Facebook? We're concerned about that. That's what the early church would say. Is your confession just lip service? Or has the gospel and God's grace captivated you so that you will willingly walk in a way to be formed all the days of your life? So that that little funny thing, you will be being discipled in the law of liberty so I can walk five miles under Roman law and still say, God speed be with you, bless you. Can I bring water to your house or whatever you want to do? Ultimately displaying for all to see, I am not under Roman law, I'm not under Jewish law, I'm not under church law, I'm under the law of love in Christ. That's where the church was getting that way back when. I'm not saying it was right I'm saying it should spark some thought in our mind and go, oh, they took verses like this and they went. It's also, it's kind of a nice thing to do for Christians who are just playing the game, right? Maybe you've played the game in your life. I've played the game in my life. But a lot of, a lot of people play religious games. And the writing from James says, don't bother because that's foolishness. If you don't want to adhere to what Jesus has prescribed for us and shown us, 
Just don't claim to be a Christian. We're good. Last verse, we're done. This is radically contextualized. There were a lot, of, a lot of widows and orphans back then. There are some now. Don't take this as the key social issues. There's lots of them. But what James is pointing out is what? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Get involved with people who are unable to take care of themselves because that's what Jesus has done for you. Oh! You realize that's what that cross was, right? I'll speak for me personally. There was a freight train coming in my life, and it's called my own sin. <laughs> my sin, not yours. And there's going to be a day of reckoning. And Jesus, in great love for me, took care of me in the cross when I couldn't do really a thing about it, yet continue to sin. So James sums up this last chapter with, this is what the kingdom is about. This is what pure religion is about. And I don't have but a couple minutes. Doing undefiled religion is actually the primary thing, I said it last week, that keeps us unstained from the world. Not pontificating about doing the right thing. Should we do the right thing, dear? Should we pray about helping those who are in need? Yes, let's pray about it. Let's wait six months, whatever we do. But actually doing that and walking in that way, holistically, the whole gospel will help me with my anger issues with my wife. That's what James is getting at. Doing what God would prescribe, learning from Jesus and walking in obedience will help me with maybe some of the issues that we're having in our marriage. It's not a quick fix. It's not like Pastor said I can do this and go, woo! But the point is, Jesus has been placed first. We are now, as a couple, trying to walk in the way he's prescribed. And in that way, much of the world and much of the stains that come, and I do, are sequestered because I'm about the Father's business. And so that's what we need to hear. That's what our country needs to hear. That's what the American church needs to hear. There's a lot of divide in the church. That we must be doers and not simply hearers. Otherwise, we're the biggest fools. And we shouldn't be taken seriously. Amen? No matter what you say, if you say it with complete and utter honesty and truth, yet walk out this door and deny it with your life, I will say thank you for fooling me once. It won't happen what? Now there's grace and forgiveness. God forgives. There's grace. But remember, say it like this. I'll finish up my first century story. You know when John would have taught Josh a lot of the doctrine? About 10 weeks before he was baptized. Meaning, we got to teach Josh the creeds and we got to teach him about the faith. But the point was, we're not going to throw these pearls before what? We're going to make sure Josh has been impacted by the Holy Spirit, is being formed, and he's willing to not simply be a doer, a hearer, but he is into the teachings of Jesus Christ with his whole life. It sounds a bit weird. You can read history, but that's what they did. I'm always saying that as an example. I think the correct way is always somewhere in the what? Middle. 
Because believe it or not, Jesus was in the middle a lot more than we want to give him credit for. He was never in the middle about our hearts. The whole Sermon on the Mount teaching was about your heart and my heart. But some of the other stuff, how we deal with people, in the middle. And we can learn from that. Why don't we stand? I know it was like a lot going on in your mind. I see it in your eyes. I'm going to pray for God's spirit to give us more grace to understand, hopefully, the truth that we heard. And I'm going to pray that God would impact our hearts this week so that me, I'll start with me, will not simply be a what? Hearer? But I will be a doer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the hearts and minds and souls and lives represented in this room and in our church and our family and around the world. Father, in this time of great angst and divide, not only in our nation, but in many churches and around the world, give us the grace via the empty tomb and the power of the Spirit to be doers, to prove with our lives that we are under a law of liberty and not even under a law of Christianese, which I find myself to lean toward many times. Father, bless us and keep us. May your face shine upon us all the days of our life. May your countenance be lifted upon us. In Jesus' name we say, all God's people said what? Amen. Amen.